everyone, and welcome back to Rounding the News. This is your weekly news roundup presented by Rounding the Earth and brought to you by me, Liam Sturgis. I'm a musician, singer, songwriter, music producer, writer slash editor, and content thing, I suppose is what's on my business card these days. Um, Rounding the Earth, as you know, is a wonderful community of people I see on our locals chat. Kat Christoforu is here and Will Nav. Thank you for joining us live today and shout out to everyone watching live on Rumble and Rockfin and Odyssey and uh, now CloudHub and Facebook. So we're going to jump right in with our stream for today, March 10, 2023, limited hangout files. Hopefully I won't upset too many people with my hot takes today. So just jumping over to my script here before we get started, where did I hide my little thing? Oh, I don't have that set up. That's fine. So before we get started, no matter where you're watching, whether it's Rumble or Rockfin or Odyssey, you can support the show. You can fill our coffers uh, on Rumble. They have these fun things called Rumble Rants. They're like paid comments. You just see that little green dollar sign. Please and thank you. And on Rockfin and Odyssey, there are also tip options as well. We appreciate it tremendously but the best thing of course is to go to www.renningtheearth.locals.com where you can become either a free member of the community no charge required where you can keep up to date with everything we're doing in a dedicated spot with a wonderful community of people who are like-minded and there for the same reasons as you and where we can learn a lot from each other alternatively you can use the promo code RTE March 2023, I believe, to get a free month of premium support, after which you can continue for as little as $5 a month or $50 for the year. And you can get access to our weekly supporters exclusive live streams. For example, this past Wednesday, two days ago, we did a show called Crowdsourcing and Understanding of Gangs, which stands for Governance by Aggressive Nonsensical Gurus. And uh, we're doing a bit of a crowdsourcing project there. Um, so you can watch that and the upcoming streams if you are a if you become a paid supporter. So um, let's dive in. The first thing I want to do is I want to shine a spotlight on two of my uh, relatively new favorite people, which uh, the first of which is Mark Kulak, Husatonic Live. He has been pointing out that there's sort of a litmus test nowadays where, you know, it's sort of becoming almost the mainstream thing to do to question if things went correctly in terms of public health measures and whether the COVID-19 immunizations are safe, uh, whether they're immunizations at all. This is sort of becoming the cool thing to do. But you know what's not cool still is talking about a little drug called remdesivir, the basis of which led to the use of this drug becoming the standard of care in hospitals across the United States paved the way for a boatload of other really bad choices, including the rollout of various experimental injections and therapeutics. So without remdesivir, a drug that unfortunately has killed a lot of people, we wouldn't have any of that. So I'm going to include in the show notes a link to this video, the horrifying history of remdesivir that nobody wants to talk about. Well, Mark, I want to talk about it. But for now, moving on to the second of the two gentlemen I want to highlight here, GigaOM Biological, a, 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 a program run by Jonathan Cooey. Jonathan Cooey is one of the people who was earliest at questioning the official narrative of this thing, this virus, this novel coronavirus being uh, a lab leak, uh, or sorry, rather, a natural origin, and 
suggesting that a lab leak might be more likely. However, fast forward three years, and it's looking an awful lot like even that uh, dichotomy of natural origin versus lab leak may have been part of a bit of a deception. So I highly recommend going to uh, twitch.tv slash bio to watch uh, JJ's live streams where he does a tremendous job providing yet another alternative take on what's going on. And I think it's an important view of the biology and the, the underlying virology that most of us have never had the chance to learn. So again, the link to that will be in the show notes after the show. Now, let's move on to the main topic of today. Is anyone else picking up on a trend? I'm going to call it the insert noun here files trend. On February 28th, British news outlet The Daily Telegraph kicked off a new series of articles titled The Lockdown Files. The series is centered around a set of greater than 100,000 WhatsApp messages provided to The Telegraph purporting to demonstrate the many failures of the, uh, of the, the British government, in particular key government officials, during the course of the COVID-19 era. In particular, former Health Secretary Matt Hancock, and as well Chief Scientific Advisor Chris Witte, but primarily Hancock. The supposed revelations, and there are revelations, I suppose, they're, they're exciting, affirming the emerging consensus that the response to the declared pandemic caused far more harm than good. From the government's use of nudge units to govern by fear, to the outright rejection of evidence-based scientific advice, to conflicts of interest, linking together bureaucrats and lobbyists, the lockdown files have it all. Topped off, of course, with nods to sex scandals and Bill Gates. Those two things aren't related, I hope. Now, despite the appearance of a full-on revelation of wrongdoing, the lockdown files are far from a tell-all expose. In fact, I am concerned that behind the flashy headlines lies an effort to misdirect and mislead believers and dissidents alike. So at the risk of telling people what they already know, I'd like to introduce a concept called a limited hangout. For this, I will borrow the words of Victor Marchetti, former special assistant to the deputy director of the Central Intelligence Agency. A limited hangout is spy jargon for a favorite and frequently used uh, gimmick of the clandestine professionals. When their veil of secrecy is shredded and they can no longer rely on a phony cover story to misinform the public, they resort to admitting, sometimes even volunteering, some of the truth, while still managing to withhold the key and damaging facts of a case. The public, however, is usually so intrigued by the new information that it never thinks to pursue the matter further. It goes without saying that the general public is much more open-minded to the idea that the last few years have not only resulted in policy decisions that didn't work for their stated purpose, but actually caused significant harm. Certain topics are starting to seep into mainstream publications, including the reality that all-cause mortality in countries around the world is soaring. In other words, more people are dying from all causes, including the so-called COVID-19, 
after COVID-19 measures were implemented in 2020. Of course, few of them are outright blaming pandemic policies. Specifically, there is a long list of reasons why decision makers at all levels would aggressively reject the, uh, 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 aggressively rather want to redirect focus away from the ever clearer reality that all available COVID-19 vaccine products are injuring and killing people en masse. The legal and spiritual liability on those who promoted, coerced, and forced needles into arms is immense and is increasingly difficult to avoid. As such, it is no surprise that as news of vaccine injury and death continues to spread, so too will stories focusing on other causes that are equally or less likely to explain the global state of affairs. In the end, it was the totality of institutional actions that led to this widespread harm. And all must be examined with precision and depth for accountability to be possible. Nothing must be left out. And as the reality of the illness and death worldwide continues to take hold in the public consciousness, we don't know will quickly lose its validity as an explanation. Here are a few examples. This chart, Statistics Canada's excess mortality estimates for Nova Scotia. As you can see, it's not looking good. And this is from an article titled, Nova Scotia tight-lipped about spike in deaths. Interesting choice of words. Unexpectedly high numbers of people are dying in an untimely fashion, expert says. That is from CBC News from three days ago. Second example from Sky News, Australia. Severely damaged and abandoned. Australian victims of COVID-19 vaccine injuries feel they are not being heard by Australian government. And a third example, child speech delays increase following lockdowns. So as you can see, there's a wide range of things being reported on. Now, with that in mind, and in the locals chat, people are pointing out, wow, that's, oh, OMG, that's CBC. Wow, yes, indeed. Um, let's look now with this in mind at the lockdown files. So on February 28th, 2023, the first article in the lockdown files was published titled The Lockdown Files, How WhatsApp Messages Offer an Unprecedented View of Government Failings. The Telegraph article explained that the revelations to follow will help people form their own conclusions about what the UK went through in the darkest days of the pandemic. No author was listed in this debut article. In fact, the vast majority of articles in the series would be credited to the pseudonymous Lockdown Files team with accompanying commentary inserted as opinion pieces by Telegraph writers, columnists, and editors. One of the 12 articles published on day one was titled, quote, I had to release Matt Hancock's COVID WhatsApp messages to avoid a whitewash. Written by Isabel Okashot, the source of the leaked communications. I put leaked in quotes for a reason. She explains that she was provided copies of the 100,000 messages by Matt Hancock himself while the two collaborated on writing his memoir titled The Pandemic Diaries. Specifically, 
She says that Hancock, quote, downloaded the records from his phone and shared them with various people following his June 2021 resignation from government. Hancock publicly confirmed this in the last week, stating they had worked closely together for more than a year on his book based on legal confidentiality and a process approved by the cabinet office. Okashot immediately defended her decision to provide copies of these confidential messages to the Telegraph, expressing concern that the United Kingdom's COVID inquiry would become a colossal whitewash. After all, the inquiry had already spent nearly two years and tens of millions of pounds in taxpayer money and has not yet even started in earnest. So, in order to fast-track the process, Okashot decided it would be the most ethical choice to tap the telegraph to help her get what she feels is the real story to the public. Now, this brings us to a very important question. If Okashot's mission was full disclosure of the dark inner workings of the UK government's COVID-19 decision-making, then why did she decide to selectively release the messages one by one through a third-party news organization? Why introduce a gatekeeper into the process when you're claiming to be removing the gatekeeper? In her article, published in the British Medical Journal, writer Jackie Wise points out that Okashot has said uh, that she chose the Telegraph because of its anti-lockdown stance. Surely, she could have done, uh, she could have seen this coming. She could have done some due diligence or just three seconds of thought and combated this criticism by inviting at least one other organization, one that could be de described as pro-lockdown, to balance out the public perception of Okashot's good intentions of unbiased, transparent revelations of the truth. As noted in that BMJ article, the BMJ, like other media outlets, has not seen or independently verified the messages. It gets even more suspect when you realize that so far, no actual WhatsApp messages have been produced. Hear me out on this for a second. We are told that Hancock downloaded the 100,000 WhatsApp messages from his phone. There are a few ways for him to have done this. One way, as outlined by this explainer published by Data Storage Service Backblaze, there is an export chat feature that results in messages that are in .txt format along with any accompanying media files in their own specific format. Images would be .jpeg or .png, maybe .gif, GIF as some might call it. Videos would be .mov, .mp4, and so on. Assuming Hancock wasn't sending or receiving hundreds or thousands of videos or high quality pictures, the resulting folder would be very small. In fact, I looked up how big .txt folders usually are, and the result is, it seems, each character is one byte, largely speaking. So we're talking bytes, kilobytes, megabytes, maybe gigabytes. But geez, that would be a lot of extra media in there. Um, yeah. 
So they'd be small and easy to share, as he did with Okashot and others, especially when compressed into a .zip archive, which is a required step, depending on how the files were shared. Alternatively, they may have been uploaded and stored on a Google Drive or Dropbox account, reducing the need to repeatedly upload and download copies of the whole archive. Here's what I'm getting at. It would be very easy to include copies of the messages in their original format, complete with metadata for verifiability to substantiate the Telegraph's reporting. And so I wonder why are they not doing this? If they are taking advantage, maybe, of the trove of, of treasurous messages to squeeze out as much attention as possible for business reasons or whatever, then they could opt to release one message at a time as they are revealed in a given article. And look, if not this specific process, a near equivalent process surely took place. Something very, very close to this. Uh, at least for Android phones, for example, message backups are stored in a folder called databases, as shown in this screen capture from WhatsApp's own help page. Uh, as it notes, you cannot open these folders outside of WhatsApp. So these would be these would be a different file format than .txt. You couldn't just open this on your computer. Normally, you would need to load it inside WhatsApp in order to actually read the messages. An option that is available to the general public and journalists alike. It seems to be less likely that Hancock uh, would have shared the messages in this format. It's clunkier, you know, not as intuitive. But even if it is the case that he did, the database folder would still be easily published for the public to review and independently verify as real. So your next thought might be, but Liam, they are releasing the messages. Even better, they're releasing screenshots, which could only have been taken by Hancock's phone or the person on the receiving end of the messages. But that's just not true. Think about how overwhelmingly laborious it would be to take individual screenshots of every single message. Oops. Of every single message. Let alone the limitations of what else could be placed on the screen for context. You have a message, but the message doesn't take up the whole screen. You have messages before and after, and you would have to decide based on the context of what you're trying to convey or capture, what comes before, what comes after. It's not a reasonable premise that he did this. It's logically baseless to think that Hancock would even try to sit down and take hundreds of thousands of screenshots as a backup, whether or not he intended to hand them out to journalists. It would be far more reasonable, for example, to suggest that he had captured screenshots of specific messages that he considered particularly notable. Heck, I do that in the moment sometimes as a reflex with no specific intention to back up or distribute them. I just have, I have copious amounts of unfortunate accidental screenshots of messages in my phone. But that's not what we're being told happened here. We are told that 100,000 WhatsApp messages were downloaded from Hancock's phone, which were necessarily not in the form of images generated by screenshots. And by the way, 
it's entirely possible that the size limitations of most phones wouldn't allow for 100,000 screenshots like that. So why then do we instinctively think of these as screenshots when we look at them? Let's take a closer look at the messages that appear in the articles. Um, we have one up on screen here. This image is a screenshot that I took from the March 9th article titled Ministers Feared Racist Label If They Spoke About COVID Spread. Now, this is an interactive demonstration, so you'll need to uh, pull up the article on your own device if you want to verify what I'm doing. Um, a smartphone should work as well, but it, I think, will be more finicky. So I will give about 10 seconds for people if they want to. Uh, I know there's no link uh, immediately available. Maybe I, actually I will um, drop that so that people can follow along with me if they like. Hold tight. I will drop this in the locals chat. That's, oh, well, that's an archive version. See, I'm, man, don't, don't use that version. That won't work. This is the version you should use. And we'll put that in the Rockfin chat as well. And in Rumble. Let's head over here. Paste, go. So you can pull that up if you like and follow along with me as I do this. Okay, so. Uh, back to my notes here. All right. So on first glance, the WhatsApp message, uh, this thread here looks like it was taken straight from Hancock's phone or perhaps his iPad or his laptop due to the width you can see. But when you put four seconds of thought into this, the reality begins to set in. Are we supposed to believe, for example, that those profile pictures that we see are the photos selected by Hancock and or Nadine Dorries, who's the recipient in this case. Look closely at Hancock's face. From a distance, just in this small icon format, he's not exactly portraying a sympathetic character. Though when you zoom in, a larger version does reveal what looks more like a press shot. He has a bit more of a smile. Now, a reverse image search reveals that the photo has been used for a handful of news pieces, starting with a March 31st, 2020 BBC article about Hancock uh, recovering from a mild case of COVID-19. Uh, similar results can be found when you uh, repeat it for uh, Dory's. Now, I suppose the implication here is that you know, with, with Hancock here, he admired this picture that is credited to Reuters so much that he decided to set it at his, as his WhatsApp profile picture and the same with Dory's. Now, of course, the Telegraph isn't even actually pretending that these are screenshots. If you look even closer, this is why I had you pull it up if, if you have. If you look closer, the messages are presented in a composite format of text, images and interactive annotations and each piece can be interacted with differently individually in this image i have on my screen now i scrolled my cursor over the highlighted andy burnham text which reveals an annotation explaining who burnham is he's the mayor of greater manchester 
needless to say, this is a useful element that was added by the telegraph. Hovering over the I icon beside a message results in a similar pop-up annotation, this time offering an interpretation of the message as opposed to adding simple biographic context. So my point is this. My point is this. These are not original messages, nor are they screenshots of original messages. These are editorialized representations of .txt files, which were backed up and then exported from Hancock's phone for easy distribution in bulk. If this is such a monumental story, the effects of which are supposedly intended to dramatically alter the course of the United Kingdom's post-COVID-19 in, uh, inquiry in the court of public opinion, then why fail to provide the evidence required to independently verify the basis of the reporting? Even if my wish were granted and the underlying messages were disclosed in a way that could then be used, for example, in the court of law, used as forensic evidence, to show, indeed, for sure, that these were not manufactured, which I'm not suggesting they were, even if that were the case, there's still the matter of the selective disclosures. A narrative being written, a narrative is being written by the team behind the lockdown files, and it is a biased one. It is not possible to avoid gatekeeping as the individual or collective bias of the Telegraph team working on the articles will result in some material being withheld so as to best support whichever truth they're trying to architect for better or worse. So, what is being said? At this point, personally, I can confidently say that I feel it's most likely that the lockdown files are an attempted limited hangout operation. It is an institutional campaign by all accounts. The WhatsApp messages were provided by a representative of the institution to a number of, institution, of institutionally sanctioned co-authors. Remember, the British government gave their thumbs up for that to happen. Who then provided those messages to an institutional media organization, The Telegraph. At no point in this process were the messages leaked. And no whistleblower makes an appearance. Those words are misleading and do not represent the chain of events in this context. Full stop. Heck, the lockdown files already has its own Wikipedia page. It does not get much more institutionally endorsed than that, especially in the context of COVID-19. So with that in mind, it's time to actually look at what is being summarized. What are these primary revelations from the lockdown files? Let's find out. So first, harm to elderly long-term care residents. I think at this point, we can all agree there was lots of harm done in particular to long-term care residents. Don't mind the person crawling behind me in the back there. No one saw it, don't worry. Um, so in an article titled, Far from a protective ring, WhatsApp messages show care homes were cast adrift. In this article, Hancock is accused of putting senior citizens in danger by failing to make COVID-19 tests mandatory for all entering long-term care facilities. 
I quote, this widely criticized policy was blamed for care homes accounting for roughly half of all excess deaths, 2000, or sorry, 25,374 between March 7 and September 18 last year, according to the Office for National Statistics. As coronavirus ripped through facilities caring for 400,000 residents in England. All of this is blamed squarely on community transmission of SARS-CoV-2, which apparently would have been prevented if mandatory testing was in fact implemented. The article's entire premise relies on the notion that diagnostic testing, including PCR or rapid antigen, ever did or ever could provide any meaningful information with which to determine whether or not someone is sick or contagious with a disease-causing virus. It also entirely fails to mention the plethora of other reasons long-term care residents were dying in large numbers in 2020, not the least of which is the widespread use of end-of-life care to treat patients that tested positive for SARS-CoV-2. What I would have expected the Telegraph to cover is the record-breaking increase in use of powerful sedatives, including midazolam and morphine, both of which depress breathing and essentially resulted in the systemic euthanizing of senior citizens. Incredibly, there were even calls to loosen regulations to allow morphine to be deployed in even greater quantities for, quote, relaxing patients who have acute shortness of breath. A second article describes Hancock's concern that increasing the rate of testing in nursing homes would, quote, get in the way of actually fulfilling the capacity of testing. Or as The Telegraph put it, put his personal goal in jeopardy. Again, I'm no Matt Hancock fan, but heaven forbid the campaign operate within its capacity to succeed. And there are several other uh, examples. Here are some headlines, all from February 28th. Uh, related to testing and goals and all that. Testing was really important to these folks, you know? This was compounded by facilities that chose not to subject staff to testing, apparently out of concern that they would be forced to operate with even less staff than their already thinning rosters. Granted, a later article emphasizes the inhumane decision to prevent friends and family from visiting care home residents. This is reminiscent of what my friend, Dr. York Shung, experienced with his mother here in British Columbia, Canada. Many elderly residents suffered due to these policies with no reason whatsoever to believe they would help anyone at all. Just to reemphasize the level of institutional influence that these lockdown files have, former United Kingdom First Lady Rachel Johnson penned a guest piece for the lockdown files. Yes, you heard that right. Sharing her mother's own experience in, quote, care home prison. Whose government are we criticizing here? I'm a little confused. Discussions though, of senior citizens and long-term care facilities essentially ended after March 2nd. Moving on to more sensational matters. There was 
the preferential treatment for government officials. Yet another thing that's been quite clear to uh, anyone paying attention. There are numerous examples provided of elected officials and bureaucrats receiving preferential treatment, unfairly getting a step up in the pandemic. On what exactly? Testing. There was an example of a, an MP's son who got a test couriered to him and then couriered to the lab. And how dare he? We need this testing for other people. We're at capacity, dang it. Yeah. Then there was, of course, this, this party gate incident where Boris Johnson and his staff threw a big party. In this case, this example is a different uh, situation involving government officials getting together to party while regular citizens were forced to stay isolated. Just reading from this screenshot here, how about we celebrate the departure of Pierce Morgan at slash after our team meeting tomorrow p.m.? Just a thought, Helen Waitley told the then health secretary. Mr. Hancock replied, Perfect. As it adds, Britain was still in its third lockdown at the point the messages were exchanged and social gatherings were limited to two people meeting outside in public places. It was illegal for social gatherings to take place indoors or to involve more than two people. The country's quarantine hotels, which that's a real thing, guys. It was a real thing here in Canada, too. I think you guys in the States got off scot-free on that one. Not so much here or in the UK. They were a source of humor for Hancock and Permanent Secretary Simon Case. They read, we are giving big families all the sweets and putting pop stars in the box rooms. I just want to see some of the faces of people coming out of first class and into a premier in shoebox. Any idea how many people we locked up in hotels yesterday? None, but 149 chose to enter the country and are now in quarantine hotels due to their own free will. Hilarious, Simon Case replies. And... Once again, there are a number of examples of headlines, including a nice piece, I suppose, by Nigel Farage, who, who brags, I broke the lockdown rules and pipsqueak Matt Hancock couldn't stop me. Well, I'm glad these guys are having fun with their public discussions. Then there's the physical and psychological health damage from shielding policies, which is another word for social distancing, lockdown, etc., this headline reads, witty and valence raised concerns about shielding, yet it remained for months. Chief medical officer even said he would personally think twice about the guidelines, but ministers still asked for two, still asked 2.2 million people to follow them. Okay. Now, um, this is where my script has erased itself. So we're going to go off book here. So I have done my best to sort of try to capture what exactly is being said in these things. The premise of it is problematic and the contents of it are problematic. And I've, I've collected all of the uh, headlines onto a page on the Campfire Wiki, Lockdown Files. That is campfire.wiki, and then you can use the search bar to find um, the Lockdown Files page. There is also a page on the uh, Telegraph website where they have themselves collected the articles in the lockdown file series. Both of those links will be in the show notes. Now, the question is, what is the intended outcome of these articles? What is, what is being stated as we want X to happen? Well, we already know the, we know the original intention by Isabel Okashot was to accelerate or to somehow avoid a whitewash in the COVID inquiry in the UK. But then you have headlines like this. Matt Hancock should be arrested for willful misconduct in public office. 
the Slivy Tove can and must be dragged before a select committee and made to answer for his actions and the vast hurt they have caused by Allison Pearson. Now, I am no Matt Hancock fan, and I agree that his actions have caused harm to the extent that that can be proven. That needs to be something that he is held accountable for. But to think or to suggest that Matt Hancock is the only person on which all of this can be squarely blamed is absurd. It is gaslighting. This is gaslighting. The slivy tove. So that's one thing. Now, I, again, just to emphasize, I'm not saying he shouldn't be brought in front of a select committee. I'm saying he should, along with all of his colleagues. Then there's this, number 10, to consider Wuhan leak theory. After backlash to, quote, entirely coincidental remarks, PM's spokesperson says still questions to be answered after lockdown files showed censorship of China comments in Matt Hancock's book. It's funny. After all of these years, after three years of people like the highly intelligent Jonathan Cooey, as I mentioned earlier, who on his stream yesterday or two days ago about the select committee in Congress on the COVID-19 pandemic, who are now entering on the congressional record what he was warning about three years ago. The fact that back then it seemed like a decent thing to be warning people about, but we're far past this lab leak theory. It's become very clear that the natural origin, the lab leak theory, both of them are flawed concepts. And both of them, as they're being directed by number 10 in the United Kingdom and United States Congress, as it stands, are calling for more biosecurity. So if that's one of the outcomes of the lockdown files as well, well, that's awfully convenient. Okay, now one more outcome, just as an example. We have this article titled... Uh, Let's see. Again, I, I had my notes and they disappeared. But it was called uh, Lockdown Files. It was titled uh, Project Fear Authors Discussed When to Deploy New COVID Variant. Now, it reads as the following. I wish my notes didn't disappear. I'm going to read you a select passage. Okay. Matt Hancock wanted to deploy a new COVID variant. Actually, I think I have it here. Yes, I do. Ha ha. To frighten the pants off the public and ensure they complied with lockdown. Leaked messages seen by the Telegraph have revealed. The previous month, Matt Hancock, the then health secretary, appeared to suggest in one message that a new strain of COVID that had recently emerged would be helpful in preparing the ground for the looming lockdown by scaring people into compliance. In a WhatsApp conversation on December 13, obtained by The Telegraph, Damon Poole, one of Mr. Hancock's media advisors, informed his boss that Tory MPs were furious already about the prospect of stricter COVID measures and suggested we can roll pitch with the new strain. The comment suggested that they believed the strain could be helpful in preparing the ground for a future lockdown and tougher restrictions in the run-up to Christmas 2020. Mr. Hancock then replied, we frightened the pants off everyone with the new strain. Mr. Poole agreed, saying, yep, that's what will get proper behavior change. So that's what it said. There's bits in between that uh, are, I think help clarify a little bit what they meant. But what happened? 
on March 4th, my partner and colleague and mentor, Matthew Crawford, tweeted, it looks like I was right about Omicron being a release, not an emergent strain. This was a shocking thing to see and very exciting because Matthew's Omicron hypothesis is very interesting. And I'll allow him on another occasion to explain it in more detail. But I thought, well, I should go check what it says. And I didn't read it quite the same way. So I expressed my question. Can you elaborate on how this demonstrates Omicron being a release? To me, this seems much more like an admission of manipulating the perceived test results than actually doing anything meaningful with variants, release or otherwise. They wanted a new variant and they found it. Others also had questions. People we know, Dr. Kat Lindley replied, British are saying this particular message timing correlates with release of Kent strain in UK. She's pointing out the article doesn't at all mention Omicron or, or come anywhere near close to the, quote, Omicron era, end quote. The variant they're talking about was the Kent variant. Matthew follows up and explains, but if they were releasing strains, it stands to reason that one that looked genetically unlike the rest wasn't the one that occurred naturally. But there's a problem here. I think Matthew misread this. I don't think anything in that article actually suggests anything to do at all with handling or, or control of, of any virus, any, any, that's all a fantasy. What the article is admitting, however, is foreknowledge to a degree. It's admitting, or it is shining a spotlight on the way in which the notion of variance at the perfect time, perfectly timed with the rollout of the shots, which they knew would not stop transmission. They would barely work, if at all, and probably would make things worse. This was all known to them. We now have robust evidence for it. So perfectly timed. We knew that this thing was being reported as coming out within certain circles, and now's the time to deploy it. But Matthew's filling in some gaps here that maybe he has knowledge that I don't and that others don't. He's explained it to me and others a couple of times with varying degrees of helpfulness. But I think he was misled here. I think the article intended to catch very intelligent, very discerning people like Matthew off guard. People are ready to be vindicated. And Matthew's case in particular, his theory is, I think, correct, to be clear. I just don't think the article said what he thought it said. So this is not an attack on Matthew, to be very clear. This is an attack on the lockdown files. Why would an article be written in such a way to suggest implicitly that there were variants deployed as it reads in the headline? Because if it can get Matthew thinking one way, and this is my opinion, incorrectly, then there are plenty of people paying much less attention who will also be fooled by this kind of thing. And again, the deployment of variants is perfectly in line with what is looking more and more like a very problematic narrative. So, oh, it made me open up the tweet. That's not what I wanted to do. But speaking of Twitter, in conclusion, as I was going through this, I made the joke earlier, the insert noun here files. What other cases have we seen recently where 
a white hat, somebody who maybe is from the inside of the thing, but who comes in, makes a big change or, or says they're going to, and then dumps a long series of information in, in serial format like this with the name, the insert noun here files. Ryan Christian of The Last American Vagabond has been very vocal about agreeing with the vast majority, if not all, of what the law about the Twitter files say. But he also pointed out and primed me to be thinking in this way that screenshots are not evidence. Pictures taken of the phone or from your phone of your computer screen looking at a file is not itself a file. So why, again, would these documents not be made public? For example, the Hunter Biden laptop, the emails, the treasure trove that was legally obtained, legally disclosed to the internet, that was a leak. And those files, uh, and I know this because I've been able to verify it, are email files. You can open them up in your email uh, folder and view them as emails. But more importantly, the metadata on them verifies their origin. So I'm saying there's precedent for this. Why would they not do that here with something far less scandalous compared to the allegations of what's on the Hunter Biden laptop? Anyway, this is something I think we need to continue to ask ourselves. Why would we wind up in a situation where things that are ostensibly confirming and affirming what we believe to be true, why do they then fall short of journalistic integrity? The same that we are calling on those we disagree with to rise to. It's got to apply to everybody, to Matthew, to me, to Mark Kulag, to the Telegraph, to Robert Malone, to you in the chat. This is something we must all aspire to. So those are my thoughts. Those are my two cents. Roundingtheearth.substack.com remains a fantastic place to get high quality, high intellect writings from Matthew Crawford. And you can also go to liamsturgis.com if you want to start to dip your toes into what I do outside of this crazy world of COVID and why it is that I am so adamant that we resolve things. I'd really like to get back on stage, everybody. Thank you for watching. And thank you to everybody who's been enjoying themselves in the chat and contributing to the discussion. I'll be going through those after, and these show notes will be coming very soon. I've been Liam Sturgis. This has been Rounding the News. Good afternoon. Mm -hmm.